Hello and welcome, my little goblins. Ah, what an excellent day for an exorcism. I'm your host, Kira Astor, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host. Listen to her, a child of the night. What sweet music she makes. Here's Raven. Hello, Raven. How are you? <laughs> Good evening. Yes. <laughs> How you doing? I am good. I'm living my best fall vampire life. I know, I know that the it's usually summertime here in San Francisco, but it's been a beautiful kind of moody fall, cloudy day. The fog is rolling in. I'm in the mood for spooky horror fun. I'm happy to be here to talk about all things horror with you. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Like, I felt like this is what my life is leading up to. My love of horror, surrounded by pumpkin goodies, with a mic, with one of my best friends in the world. I'm like so pumped. Let's go! <laughs> but before we we intro our topic for horror, why we chose horror, why it's relevant, let's quickly cover social media for the folks, how they can reach out to us, and tell us their thoughts. Yes! What did you think of Halloween End? Do you think Freddy would win against a fight with Jason? Comment on our videos at, that we post on our YouTube channel, Full Screen Podcast. You can also post all of your thoughts about our podcast on our Instagram and Twitter feeds at Full Screen Pod. Um, we don't screen comments, so... Don't use it as a free-for-all to get nasty, but get the right kind of nasty, if you know what we mean. Um, we also have our email, screened <laughs> at gmail.com. If you would like to send us dirty limericks, poems, or your general thoughts about the state of streaming in tech today, topics you'd like to see us cover, um, or talk to us about, you know, those weird, creepy dreams you've been having that wake you up at 3 a.m. every night, like, we love hearing spooky shit. Listen, do they have to be creepy or... You know what I mean? We're I think we're in the creepy season. So yeah, once it's November, it's like, done! <laughs> Your dreams have to be about turkey now, you know? Mm. Good dreams. I am hungry. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, tell us your thoughts. Uh, we are very excited to know them. Um, on to the topic. Okay, so... Horror. Webster's Dictionary defines horror as... No, 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 no. We're not going there. <laughs> what is this? Your best man speech at like right? <laughs> a horror wedding or something? Incredible. With that, horror, guys, this is a, I would say, peak time for horror. Just in general, not even this October. This is peak horror time that we're living in. And we've seen just this year, we've seen so many movies, right? Hellbender by John Adams, Zelda Adams, Toby Poser, Barbarian that just came out by Zach Kreger, X by Ty West, Pearl by Ty West. He's spinning up his own Mia Gothverse, which incredible. I'm here for it. Smile by Parker Finn, not to mention The Black Phone, Scott Derrickson, Nope by Jordan Peele. We're just just blessed with all of this horror content. But why is this? Why so many, right? For one, it's an incredibly profitable genre. According to American Film Market, 
horror films are considered to be the most profitable genre as they project a really high return on investment. That ROI, baby. Yeah, it's all about the money. Yeah, low cost, great returns, puts butts in seats, puts butts on couches. It's, it's a great return. In comparison to other genres, especially drama, we get a lot of drama, right? Only less than one third of drama movies actually return a profit, which is incredible to, to actually compare with horror. And with all of these titles that I just mentioned, there we are sort of experiencing a sort of resurgence with, you know, prestige horror becoming a thing. As we mentioned, Robert P- uh, Rob, uh, Jordan Peele, <laughs> not Robert Peele. Uh, but speaking of Roberts, Robert Eggers, Ari Aster are big names in prestige horror as well. And then behind the camera, we've seen Jason Blum with Blumhouse Productions just, just churning out that amazing oh, yeah. content. He's made horror like his own cottage industry. It's crazy. And like good horror, right? Like the shorts on Amazon Prime. and He's definitely the got the most house. variety, which I think means there is a little unevenness in the quality. Um, he's made truth or dare and unfriended, but he's also made get out. So I think he's yeah. just a big horror fan and he understands that there's different genres of horror within like the broader spectrum of it and he is also known for like you said quick return on investment really low cost production they shoot these things in like a really tight schedule and then they make a ton of money because horror is super easy to understand as a concept for everybody you know it's like a lot of universal things scare people so it's it's like um a very broad net to cast for your audience to come in and enjoy themselves. And Jason Blum knows that. Yes. And as a great producing mind, he also knows how iteration works. So if one movie fails the next year, he's going to, you know, yes. take on the feedback and he's great. Speaking of products, guys. Um, so Streaming space, right? With all of this, streaming space has been trying to get in on this a bunch very recently. Uh, And today we're going to talk about one of the modern kings of horror, especially on streaming, Mike Flanagan. His new series, The Midnight Club, just dropped on Netflix. And what better way to talk about horror content than to talk about Flanagan's style, his story structure, what our favorite story of his might be. And then we'll do a quick analysis on horror-focused streaming services. There aren't that many, but there's two that have stood out in the in recent years: Screenbox Risen and Shutter. Risen to the top, yeah. Yep, and we're going to talk about Screenbox and Shutter, going into their history, sort of doing an analysis of these apps, talking about the content catalog, feature comparisons, all that stuff. All right, let's get started. And remember, we see dead people. Welcome into the multiplying genre. Today, we're going to give our love and shine and all our admiration to the art form of bone-chilling screams, jump scares, 
and exorcisms gone wrong. Today, we highlight one name in particular, our modern horror streaming king, Mike Flanagan. Now, before we get started, we will likely have spoilers for, well, all of Mike Flanagan's works, except the new series Midnight Club, which we have not finished yet, but there might be few mentions of at least the first few episodes. So if you wish to skip, uh, don't get something spoiled for you. We will have timestamps. Do not worry, so you can skip to the next section. Careful. Spoilers ahead. All right, let's go. So Mike Flanagan, the creator behind films such as 2013's Oculus, one of my personal favorites, 2016's Hush and Ouija Origin of Evil, 2017's Gerald's Game, and 2019's Doctor Sleep, starring the love of my life, Jedi Master Obi-Wan. Oh, boy. Yeah, let's keep on time. We don't have 15 minutes to go into how beautiful Obi-Wan Kenobi looks. so beautiful. (laughs) Okay. Mike Flanagan. Uh, So Mike Flanagan made himself a household name, I would say, with the Netflix TV shows that have come out in recent years, right? 2018's The Haunting of Hill House, based on the 1959 novel by Shirley Jackson, 2020's The Haunting of Bly Manor, 1898 novel The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, 2021's Midnight Mass, which I believe is an original work, and what just came out, as we mentioned, The Midnight Club, based on 1994 book uh, by Christopher Pike. And we already have the next one lined up for next year, The Fall of the House of Usher, based on a short story. uh, By my dead boyfriend. (laughs) Yes, yes. Just just casual name, Edgar Allan Poe. So, right, Netflix is thriving with this Flanagan verse that they're spinning up. And so ratings-wise, Flanagan's content have really garnered critical and popular acclaim both and if you've listened to our episode two focused on ratings platforms if you haven't go pause this listen to that one (laughs) and then come back you know that we don't pay much attention to ratings really because very problematic especially rotten tomatoes but just to put some perspective on this all of his tv shows have garnered over, uh, an above an 85% score, and most of his movies are above an 80% as well, which is, if you know horror, that is very rare. Um, yeah, and his work is an antithesis of, like, all of the horror that had come before. Um, there's an explicit disdain of jump scares in midnight club and i feel like jump scares has been like the staple of a lot of horror movies and he specifically through a character within the show says that it's cheap and that the real terror comes from lingering and i think that it's not only a good way to call back to like the type of horror that we saw in the beginning of the century with like the horror movies from the 1920s and 30s it's very atmospheric and creepy and he's bringing a lot of like a whole new generation to appreciating that kind of art form like ones that may have only grown up with jump scare movies and stuff and he's like 
letting people into wading their wading their way into the waters of like slow moody atmospheric creepy horror and not yeah. being immediately turned off or saying this is boring nothing is happening he's like allowing us to grow patience for horror yes, yes. and we're we're going to talk about it all but that's very important to his style um for oculus la times wrote i love this quote less concerned with fake shocks and show me violence than the grimly calibrated rotting of personalities oculus is one of the more intelligently nasty horror films in recent memory the telegraph called the haunting of hill house the most complex and complete horror series of its time and the av club calls the recent release of midnight club a sprawling meditation on mortality yep all right, so what's really driving Flanagan's work and the appreciation of his storytelling, right? Well, there's a few things that stand out, and we're going to talk about all of them, all of the things that, a few things that we think that really make him unique in the genre. All right, number one, he's an auteur, right? Mike Flanagan directs, writes, and edits most of his works, until recently, I think until about Midnight Mass, he's he'd done all three, but Midnight Mass, he st- stepped back, uh, which Raven will talk about why that might have been the case. Um, so this, this authorship really allows him to have complete c- uh, control over his creation and dissemination of stories, right? This allows him to really let his vision unfold without any interruptions or slights from anyone. From a product perspective, we always tie that tie that back in. Uh, from a product perspective, this allows him to control all phases of his roadmap, right? Discovery, build, launch, and then iteration post-launch for mm-hmm. the next content. And this allows, right, like as the audience, we feel exactly what this auteur wants us to feel. And, you know, like I've been thinking about this, like little things like, little tropes like the glowing unearthly eyes that is very big in horror and not unique by any means flanagan has really made his own like spoiler guys yes there's glowing eyes again in midnight club (laughs) oh yes and even though my first reaction and you can call me a weeb about this is that they look like the shinigami eyes from death note oh my god shout out death note (laughs) he I feel like he understands why they're creepy so he's not just giving everybody random creepy eyes he is very effective in how he uses specific horror tropes because and I think to tie back to what you were talking about earlier in his product vision he has the end goal and his um, target audience very clearly demarcated so he's not flailing in what he's trying to deliver he has very crisp requirements for what he wants to put in so if this is not for you for example he's not going to force you to like it he's going to show what he likes about it and hoping that you as a viewer will have the sort of emotional intelligence to understand that okay there's beauty in something that i didn't appreciate before maybe i can grow to appreciate it or understand that it's not for me he's not trying to insult anybody by saying that this is the right kind of horror and this is the wrong kind of horror he says there's room for everything but in this particular case we're building something very specific 
Yep, exactly. Number two, his stories are incredibly personal and intimate. So Flanagan's a horror master, but he's interested in telling you a story about people, how people are, how they can be, their capability of transformation, which I get really emotional about, guys. And I'm I'm not sure if this is the correct word, Raven, but I have to say at the start of his stories, it it's I find it almost taxing to watch them because they're so real and honest and empathetic and just earnest because he's really establishing yeah. he's really pulling you in. And this I find if you can get past that, it's it has a massive payoff. It's definitely worth it later on. I know emotional labor gets overused a lot, but I feel like watching Mike Flanagan's work is emotional labor because it either, you know, reminds you of things or makes you think about the type of things that we don't want to confront. And as a very natural protective response system to staying alive and staying healthy and staying well, but he does make you think about them in a gentle way. I feel that he's not really dragging it out and making it um, a very jagged experience, but rather something that is very smooth uh, as an emotional process to say that there's ugliness, there is decay, there are, you know, uh, bad things within people that don't necessarily make them bad people. And you have to sit with that and it can be uncomfortable because we're always told to hide those parts of ourselves or hide those parts of society or the structure within which we live. So, you know, we're just thinking about things that we don't want to think about because they're not nice thoughts. So Mm, I love that, that you have bad parts within you, but it doesn't make you a bad person. Mm, Beautiful. The life lessons we get from horror, guys. (laughs) And this warmth, right? Like this warmth that he has in his stories, this like honesty and real place that he comes from, by no means does it mean that for horror to be good, there has to be warmth. There's a lot of like, quote unquote, cold, non-intimate stories, right? That we love in this genre. Hell yeah. (laughs) The greatest the Blair Witch Project, you know, uh, Black Phone, as we mentioned. Freddy, I don't Freddy, find them... Freddy, 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 Freddy. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and they're perfect. They're beautiful horror specimens that don't have this warmth. But he's, Flanagan's really found his strength and really found how to really show the horror in this sort of like subgenre, right? dysfunctional families and group dynamics like an oculus and hill house and delving deep into a single character psyche like or in hush or gerald's game incredible he does it so well number three he focuses on psychological horror almost exclusively and very powerfully highlights the themes of guilt repression trauma acceptance you know all the good all the good stuff in the world The running theme is in Haunting of Hill House, for example, the five siblings are traumatized by one event in their past and they have to come together to sort of face it and move forward. Danny Torrance, for example, in Dr. Sleep is is facing is repressing a lot through his addictions. Right. And Gerald's game, for example, our main character, Jesse, is haunted by 
an unfortunate assault years prior uh, that she's trying to work through. And, you know, it would be an easy and lazy way to make a story sort of where trauma is used as bait, trauma baiting, right? But by carefully crafting the stories and Mm -hmm. really how the story unfolds and inform the character's entire journey and how we see them towards the phase of acceptance and healing has been the standout in his work. And I really recommend, a lot has been written about the empathetic portrayal that uh, Flanagan's works really explore. Um, There's a lot of articles. One I would recommend by Shutter Blog uh, that they wrote about Dr. Sleep. And we will post the link of this article, but it talks about how addiction is portrayed in a very sympathetic manner in in Dr. Sleep. Yeah, I think he also tends to focus on the post-dramatic effects and not the actual trauma itself. It doesn't feel exploitative because he's not specifically sitting down with the actual triggering event, but rather how it affects the people that it happened to and how other people treat them because of it and the way that we talk about healing from trauma where there's an expectation of being able to go back to how things were before it happened and how that's not actually possible so it's like that that horror comes from grieving you know grieving the life that you could have had grieving what was taken from you it's a very universal experience that many of us don't even realize that that's what we're we're doing is we're grieving not only for the things we have lost but ideas we have lost you know things that could have been or the way things could have been and that's um a core element of horror is being sad sometimes is realizing that there are things that you can't change and mike flanagan says it's okay to feel that way. We all feel that way. And it's like a group therapy session almost. So it feels very personal. Like you're, you're drawn in because Mm -hmm. it's so universal. There's nobody who can say that they have lived a completely um, griefless life because that's just Mm. not possible. It's an Mm -hmm. insanely intricately intertwined experience with the general being of human emotions so you can't say that i choose to only live my life with joy you can absolutely choose to live your life with joy but that also means acknowledging the grief and my plan again i think is very much about confronting stuff rather than getting away from it and i would mm-hmm. i would highly recommend that after you watch his works that you practice whatever constitutes a self-care for yourself, whether it's like watching something silly and funny and light afterwards or, or a just bath. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. Or a bath or like, yes, lighting some candles, getting like a scented bath going and relaxing yourself or, you know, processing what you're feeling by writing it down or thinking about it and asking yourself questions of like, what is it that I'm reacting to? What really gets me, you know? So yeah. It can be, um, I guess, cheaper than therapy if you can't find someone to talk to <laughs> at your schedule, which I know like looking for help on mental health is it is traumatic on its own. Like it's such an arduous process, but 
like this is a start <laughs> this right. is a, a very small start love that um i would say where were we yes number four item so key element of his playbook is that he uses his regulars a lot throughout his works. Uh, there's a few names that he uses and recycles throughout his filmography. But to highlight Rahul Kohli, uh, right? We've seen him in a lot Midnight Mass, he, Haunting of Bly Manor. Um, He's also in an episode of The Midnight Club. Ah, okay. I'm not that far yet. Without any spoilers, um, you know that the entire process is sharing stories within. Oh my god, this... it's beautiful and, and well constructed. He's, he's a character in one of the stories. Mm, okay, wonderful. His beautiful and very talented wife, Kate Siegel, um, has shown up in a lot of his works. Carla Gugino, we've seen a lot in in a lot of his works. And a few other names, but I wanted to highlight, I guess. Yeah, I was so happy to see Henry Thomas because yes, E.T. is a very like fundamental movie for a lot of people. Um, it's their first introduction to Spielberg in a lot of people's cases, like mine. And I didn't really know much about his career. So when I saw him in, you know... Both of the haunting series and in Midnight Mass, I was like, "Oh, it's so nice to see Henry Thomas again, like a resurgence." And I think he really respects people from the '80s because I think that was his formative years of growing up and consuming media. So you know, the the doctor at the institution in Midnight Mass. Oh, excuse me, Midnight Club. <laughs> Though I'm going to get confused between those names. Uh, the doctor at the institution in Midnight Club is the same actress that plays Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street. Ah, okay. So okay. he really respects his, like, um, very Tarantino-like in the way where he takes, like, There's trust, right? Actors. There's trust in his, yeah. Yeah, it, it, like, there's something vaguely Tarantino-esque in the way he takes, like, underappreciated actors and gives them, like, these... Uh, incredibly nuanced performances to play within you know it's like a character that they're really really building out I am I'm happy to see that he's giving uh, so many people like second and third chances to come back and work with him it also makes me feel like he's a good guy and he gets along with people you know <laughs> a little a little parasocial development. <laughs> we love you Mike Flanagan come hang <laughs> Uh, all right, number five, his technical style is very unique, really, really works in this genre. Couple things follows, he follows the basic story structure to a T, right? Exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution, but he plays within that very beautifully, oftentimes layering multiple stories and timelines within one thing. Bly Manor and Hill House both play with this. His framing of shots is really unmatched. The visual language I find very, very stunning in, in his works. Um, I was reading an interview with the DP, the director of photography, Michael Fimognari, which I saw he's directed some episodes of Midnight Club, which incredible. Uh, in Collider in 2018, he mentioned that going in from day one, Mike Flanagan has a very clear vision and is very involved in crafting the visual pieces 
um, you know, symmetrically and gorgeously framing hallways and like mansions in between and transition scenes and uh, shadows in the corner are framed so beautifully, like not interrupting the scene. But if you just catch it, it's just like a little, like a little sprinkling on top. And these are all tropes we've known for a while, but he uses them very sparingly, effectively, and very beautifully. Another thing I would say, well, <laughs> little to no jump scares in his works, except Midnight Club is messing me up. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of jump scares, guys. <laughs> it's working. It all fits within the story of Midnight Club, but uh, be be warned. Um but as Raven mentioned earlier, that his his bread and butter is building that slow sense of dread and unease where really leaves you unsettled, right? And then the last thing I'd highlight about his technical style is that a sound, sound design is a character in his stories. And I find it very... Yes. Right? Like the, the restraint with audio is really admirable. I find the silences very... Silence is scarier than like loud sounds in his works, like highlighting yes. nothing at all for an uncomfortable amount of time. You know, frequent collaborator um, Trevor Gates, uh, he's a sound editor, and he said in an interview in 2018 with a soundeffect.com that silence, silence is the key to Flanagan's stories, saying that in Hill House, quote, we didn't want to make the house creaky because we wanted to, we wanted to be very articulate when we wanted to scare people. We didn't want to draw the attention to the house and make it creak unless it was a very specific event. Love this. And then a mm -hmm. couple other highlights, I'd say pacing is masterful. Dialogue is just incredible, which I will just stop there because Raven will talk about that later. <laughs> and yeah. uh, last thing I'd say, he loves to play with grander themes of humanity whether it be religion or morality or mortality and survival he really makes his stories very visceral so what i picked to talk about as my favorite work of mike flanagan i think exemplifies all the stuff that you talked about and that is midnight mass so this is a project that he's been trying to get made for like a better part of a decade. It's completely original. It's not based on any other works, unlike um, the other things that we talked about, like the Haunting series, which are both based on previously existing kind of interpretations of uh, published works by pretty That's right. um, well-known authors. And his upcoming work is, again, like a adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe. So there's a lot to draw from, from the inspiration. But Midnight Mass was completely his own. So if you don't know the spoiler-free overview of the plot of Midnight Mass is that a sleepy New England community that's based within a group of adjoining islands off the coast of, I want to say Maine or Massachusetts. I couldn't tell from the accent. Sorry, guys. But this... I thought it was the West Coast, actually. For some reason, I imagined it an island uh, off Washington or something. I don't oh. know because I associate... Well, actually, you might be right because horror on the um, Northeast just works. works I picked Maine because Stephen King is from... 
very famously from Maine. Yes. And so that's why I thought that it fit with that that whole thinking of like paying homage because A, that is the reality in a lot of those communities and B, the decay within that community, which is a big part of the plot, um, is that there are hardships from a financial perspective and from just being cut off and feeling isolated from you know, quote unquote, the mainland from the rest of the world, there's something that feels particularly ripe for horror on an island because of the isolation. And so um, this sort of sleepy community um, that gets a revival within its faith because of a new priest uh, coming into town that stirs up community events and then eventually culminates in a lot of people reckoning with their faith. And so it's definitely not a easy watch for people who are struggling with faith. Super chill, you know, super chill. <laughs> so um, I think we'll get into full spoilers territory mood here um, where Flanagan chooses to talk about the concepts around faith, mortality, and I guess moral purity and the general ideas of consensus around good and evil through a classic horror monster, vampires. So <laughs> without yeah. getting into like the plot details, because I still highly recommend everybody watches this, I feel like Midnight Mass has just really great themes and I want to go into this um, the first is, you know, death, rebirth, and the obsession with immortality. And the faith that is focused on in Midnight Mass, as the name should give it away, is specifically um, Christianity through the eyes of Roman Catholicism. And within the idea of that faith, there's always the concept of when you do enough good within this life, you earn redemption by getting into heaven. And if you fail to do so, you go to hell. So there is um, a clear cut line of morality being presented without any room for growth or ambiguity, or I would say even an evolution of understanding what good and evil is with the advent of modern life. Uh, the main character, Riley, has a very traumatic incident uh, that kicks off the series in the very beginning where he is um, driving drunk, hits another car, and he survives the crash. He's arrested and sentenced to prison for manslaughter, I believe. But the other person doesn't survive. That's why he gets the manslaughter because it was an involuntary A murder. Teenage girl. A very young person. So I think that also compounds his guilt. And he sits there in cuffs watching the paramedics try to work on the other person. And he is within his faith questioning why he survived and the other person didn't. He knows that he's clearly in the wrong. Not just from a legal perspective, but from a moral perspective as well. And he definitely has the lifestyle of somebody who put the acquisition of material possessions first. You know, he was like 
working in finance in a, a big city. Oh, I remember, yeah. And he was chasing a lot of things that didn't personally make him happy, but I assume he was told that it's what he had to do because he very specifically wanted to get away from his home community. So when he's finally released from prison on parole for good behavior, he goes back to live with his parents who are kind of on the surface, happy to see him, happy to have him back, but he doesn't feel like he's back out in society and he feels traumatized by this death constantly. And that brings me to like the, the second theme, which is, you know, the idea of forgiveness and redemption and personal responsibility. I love that this has a clear cut way of saying that forgiveness cannot be bestowed. It has to be earned. Um, there's mm. a lot of people struggling with things that they did wrong within the past that they're trying to come to terms with. The other, I would say protagonist of this series is, um, well, in reality, it's Monsignor Pruitt, but he visits the <laughs> Holy Land, um, you know, and meets what he believes is an angel. Um, turns out it is a Count Orlok-ass looking vampire, which I really love that they didn't make it like sexy Gary Oldman, oh, not at Robert all. Pattinson. I don't know Pattinson. if they ever... And speaking of vampires, they they never said. I, I don't think that it was a vampire. You're just supposed to. Well, with they don't use the happens, V word. To. They don't. They they say angel. Yes, they don't use the V word to like paraphrase Shaun of the Dead. They call him angel. Yes, because you know, in all in for all intents and purposes, he looks like one of those. Um, paintings that you see within you know renaissance paintings of angels with yeah it's just a figure yeah. with wings um which i've non-beautiful version well i've been told that biblically accurate angels are freaky as hell they've got like thousand eyes and things like that so um i don't know what you're talking about we're getting we're living in an age where we get like hot lucifer you know i, I mean, know mean that's the point though like lucifer was supposed to be hot how can you be the devil and oh, not be hot. hot canonically he's yes. hot um oh i had a lot of fun discussing this with uh with my husband who was raised catholic i feel like we had to watch the series twice because the first time i was just pausing and be like what's that explain that tell me this tell me that and he was just like i didn't really pay attention in sunday school sorry um which I feel really bad. I'm I'm sure he's going to get revenge on me by pausing, I don't know, like RRR and asking me, who's this? What's that? Um, <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, I would say they're using allegory of the Bible, but it's not completely alienating to people who aren't raised in the faith. I think there's Easter eggs for people who know the faith. Um, but... It is, again, in question of like Monsignor Pruitt goes to the Holy Land, gets um, turned. And in this canon of vampirism, he is a very aged man. He goes there as like an 80 something mm -hmm. year old and he comes back uh, in his physical prime. So he basically reverts back to the way he looked when he was a 30-something-year-old man. And I think that's an interesting take because in most cases, like I remember 
very famously in the TV show, What We Do in the Shadows, if you're bit at a specific age, you stay that age. And that's why you stay Laszlo age. gets into trouble because he bit a goddamn baby. Um, what a horrifying concept because <laughs> that thing is like a baby forever and it can't grow. So it's not growing old, but it also like means that people, if they were a bit as very old people, that's how they stay looking. I think they can still, I guess, move quickly. But in this particular yeah. canon of vampires, he reverts back to, I guess, like peak health and he takes the angel back with him. He doesn't reveal who he is because obviously it's going to freak everybody out. So he takes on the pseudonym of pa- Father Paul. And he basically begins like a spiritual revival by dosing the sacramental wine with vampire blood. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. It's cool. Cool thing to do. I appreciate that Mike Flanagan shows us that priests are shady. Um, This is not just from the anecdotes that my husband has told me about the Catholic church. I think it's, it's pretty well known that, that uh, Catholic church priests are a little <clears throat> shady. Uh, we're just, we're, we're going to move on to the next thing. We're, I mean, it is a clear cut criticism of, I think, organized religion in general. I don't think he goes into mm. like, there's no God. Um, Although Mike Flanagan personally is an atheist, and I believe that's a conclusion he came to during his recovery and during his sobriety. So that grew up Catholic. He was raised Catholic and he's given up practicing that. And you can clearly see that he um, didn't just give it up to be edgy. I think there are a lot of specific things that he cannot reconcile with. And one of them to me again is was that idea of like um the sense of isolation that people feel uh and the abandonment that people sometimes feel within a structure like organized religion that asks you to be a certain way and to not feel certain things and to only feel certain things there's something very restrictive and controlling And there's also the danger that blind faith puts you in when you don't realize the effect you're having on other people because you're so strongly guided towards what you think is a perfect utopia or a perfect situation of being um, without thinking about ramifications or consequences. So Monsignor Pruitt, in this case, wants to go back and heal not just the community but i think a very specific person a person that he had a relationship with a long time ago with whom he fathered a child and ultimately wants to turn back time and spend time with them spend time together as a family and they realize towards the end that that's just not possible, that your choices have consequences and you have to live with them, that you cannot just simply ask for forgiveness and then be granted it without understanding what your actions have done to other people. So Mm -hmm. it's not as simple as like in this particular case, going to somebody within the clergy and asking for forgiveness and saying 40 Hail Marys and that's done. You have to live with your consequences like Riley's living with his, where he's 
been sober. He even is the only sole attendee at one point. Um, but he goes to Alcoholics Anonymous with another person on the island who also hurts somebody with their drinking. He's really trying to put in the work because the guilt is just... Yes. And I think that's another message that I got is like, if you feel guilt, uh, you need to act upon it by either confronting it or making amends to the person that you feel you have wronged. And that Mm -hmm. there is a way out for everybody when they feel anger because of something someone has done to them that they can be in a place where they still feel angry about it and mourn and grieve what was taken away from them but not let that hold them back from living their life um midnight what other themes would you like to highlight for this well i i just feel like within the concept of religion um you have to understand that if you're catholic yes maybe this looks like a personal attack but speaking as someone who's not catholic and was never raised catholic i thought that it was a really good rumination of death and how ultimately all of our faith is based on the idea of that we're scared of what comes after life we don't know and we're all trying to figure that Mm. out and we all have our hopes and desires about what that may be and how immortality is represented to other people. Sometimes you can be immortal by doing something, making something that impacts people for years to come. You know, Um, imagine going back and telling Edgar Allan Poe that his work is so influential to the city of Baltimore. They named their football team after his poem. That's crazy. You know they're called the Baltimore Ravens because of Edgar Allan Poe. And no other football team is named after literary work like that. That's crazy. But, you know, that's one Mm. form of immortality. Another form is, you know, through family, through what you put out there. But it's also just not about, you know, oh, I've created a progenitor. This is my biological son and daughter and that's enough. It's like who you are to them as well, you know? Like, if they remember you, it's kind of like um, the same theme in, you know, Coco and stuff, where it's, if as long as you are remembered by the people you love, you remain alive. I This reminds me of Sinister as well, Ethan Hawke's character, and Sinister is kind of struggling with this, what, what is his legacy after? Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't believe his family yeah. and kids are his legacy, and... Um... Yeah, so the, the interesting theme that we we and see, I guess, a lot. I, I think famously, film. Midnight Mass, when it was released, people were like, there's so many monologues. And I love that. That wasn't a negative yeah, to Hamish me. Hamish Linklater. It wasn't just Hamish Linklater. I particularly enjoyed Matt... Sar- Sorry, his real name isn't Matt Saracen. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I'm a big Friday Night Lights fan, guys. Um, the actor who plays Riley. I'm... Um, Sorry, you'll always be. He's in Midnight Club yes, as well. Yes, he is. Um, I'm going to look up his name. He has these beautiful monologues with the character portrayed by Kate Siegel about that very specific concept of what death means, what the afterlife means, and what they hope is going to happen. And 
I love like actors flexing and like um, spraying the canvas with their acting skills and showing that. Zach, Zach Guilford is his name. God bless Zach, Zach Guilford and Kate Siegel for those scenes. I feel like if you're first of all going to have religion in your in your show or t- movie, there's going to be monologues because that's what church is. So, I mean, if you don't like that, take that up with the church. But I I love that. I thought streaming was the perfect home for Midnight Mass. I can't imagine this being made as a movie. There was too much to explore. Um, it wasn't about the plot, really. I wasn't concerned about who the vampire was, what his message was, why he even came back to the island with him, what Monsignor Pruitt's ultimate plan was. I was just invested in like what was going on in the moment. And that's because of how much work is put into the characters, you know, what they're telling with their facial expressions and their incredible monologues about what they're feeling now and what they've gone through. Um, There's, what life is about too. I actually forgot it was horror because I was so invested in mm-hmm. Riley, the character. And then I was like, oh yeah, this is actually supposed to scare me when yeah. we went to the angel and, plot until they came And I would say that the horror isn't the type of horror that you feel, it's not shock. It's not um, the instinct of flight or fight. It's dread. It's slow building dread compounding with everyone's natural fears about mortality, but also thinking about how they have limited time and what they've done with it and whether they have amends to make for people. Uh, It's perfect for streaming. It couldn't be a movie. And that's why I'm so glad that Mike Flanagan has chosen to work with a streaming service. I think that it's your, it's up to you how you consume it. But for me, even if you watch one episode daily or maybe two episodes, I think that's perfect because you can let the episodes sink in and ruminate. I'm glad that Netflix releases them all at once so you get to decide your pace. But um, I don't think that unless you're like really hungry for it, you should just go through all of them at once. Maybe you can do that your first viewing, but your second viewing, I would say let things sink in and ruminate because the performances, the cinematography where it lingers and it makes you feel uncomfortable because you're being made to watch people sit in their grief. Like you can't turn away. You're not seeing quick cuts and sharp editing because they want you to sit in what it feels like to be in a small community torn apart by the world sort of abandoning them. You know, the island went through an oil spill that affected the livelihood of a bunch of uh, fishermen, which is the primary industry within that island. So they're sitting in like financial and economic decay. It it feels like you're in the past. And so it's just uncomfortable to see all of that decay and grief and sadness. And you're not allowed to be pulled away from it as soon as you get uncomfortable. So it's very purposeful. Um, practice self-care when you watch this, because I think that the themes are heavy. Uh, intentionally so but even with the ability of binging I, my final thoughts on this is that watch it slowly and really really think about what every character's decisions mean 
because that's the fun of this particular mm-hmm. series is that everybody from the you know bitch Beverly at the church <laughs> to the mm-hmm. um the only Muslim family in this town the only non-Catholic I think family sheriff. in this town yeah um our hot sheriff, uh, sheriff uh played by Rahul Kohli um and the the general like I would say the townspeople of course um I think have a lot of good moments between them but the big players are of course the um the Joe Collier the other sort of town drunk that accidentally shot a girl in her spine um in his drunken episodes and the performance of that actress who also shows up in Midnight Club um during their confrontation about what he did to her basically so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let all we see two sides of guilt yes. no we see Riley's as as a drunk driver and we see uh what was his name yeah. Joe Collier Sit with those episodes. Like, don't, yeah. I, don't. Burn I have to them. say, you know, Raven has been saying like practice self care. I well, I definitely don't binge shows. That's not the way that I consume content. But this took me a couple weeks because I did take my time to finish this, really absorb things. You know, go for a walk and like watch something funny and and uh, just kind of let it go, shake it off a little bit because. If you like your horror jump scares, we respect that. We love it. This might not be for you. But if you want a little bit of a fuller story that brings different genres together, Mm -hmm. but is still a rewarding horror watch. Yeah, there's like very standard creepy spooky stuff. The vampire is genuinely horrific. Oh, the cave scene in the Holy Land was very creepy. Yeah, the moment Monsignor Pruitt encounters the quote-unquote angel. Um, creepy vampire surrounded by the desert. That was a unique visual as well. I think vampires are always in like castles or wooded areas. So it was cool to see them in um, a desert situation. That was cool. The vampire comes back to the islands and starts, like, fucking shit up. It's eating, like, cats and stuff. So, like, pretty classic horror stuff. But, yeah, you know, a bunch of cats wash up onto the beach dead. And it's, like, horror, but it's also, ooh, it looks like a biblical plague. So, lots of cool stuff for everybody, I think. But, yeah, the main um, the main thing is the cake is the slow, thoughtful ruminations on um death and forgiveness and redemption and the icing is you have a creepy vampire and some fun horror sequences when the vampire is hunting for prey so Let's put the fun in Cross Dysfunctional. (laughs) Welcome to Cross Dysfunctional. So here is where today we'll be looking into the general landscape of horror streaming services. Um, With two in particular, we'll be looking at Screenbox and Shudder. So the growth of these kind of niche streaming platforms has been outpacing the established streaming platforms lately. And 
that is ultimately how the um not just the tech sector but the entertainment industry sector also measures success so it's a good time to look at one of the most successful genres in the niche streaming horror so it has been garnering around 1.1 billion dollars in box office revenue as of last count in 2019 and the same year posted an estimated 2.3 billion dollars in global revenue so the horror genre is one of the most popular and profitable genres in the entertainment industry so that's mm-hmm. why there's a lot of investment and it makes complete sense to pursue horror for catering to niche audiences as a potential market in streaming because people are craving that content so um i was looking up an article from vanity fair around august 2022 with authentic expertise in their particular topic areas horror is able to understand audiences content and frequency needs more granularly and thus continually sate their ravenous hunger by filling the gaps that the giants struggle to address so this is around like those niche sate their ravenous hunger ooh vanity fair <laughs> i mean uh, i love the visceral imagery because horror is very it- visceral so yeah <laughs> i think that it makes complete sense again because I don't know if we touched upon this in talking about the works of Mike Flanagan, but there isn't a lot of horror content made specifically for streaming either. So when Mike Flanagan came in, it was like a big gap in the market. It was all prestige dramas and comedies, which is what a lot of like TV in the cable and premium cable sector go to as well. So horror is kind of overlooked. So there's not a lot of competition. It's just... American horror story that you can stream previous seasons off and then not much else. So the time is ripe. So I'm going to look into kind of the smaller of the two services, uh, Screenbox, uh, launched around 2015 and then it was acquired by Cinedyne in February 2021 and relaunched under the curation of management uh, by Bloody Disgusting in september 2021 hey bloody disgusting owns screenbox it is managing screenbox because bloody disgusting is also owned by cinedyne ah oh that's cool love bloody disgusting yes and heads up kira their hq is in nyc so yeah go drop in and say hi (laughs) um (laughs) i would say that the content within Screenbox is like obscure horror, but very much leans towards the exact opposite of what we were talking about. It's like um, popularly known as midnight movies, a lot of grungy horror, low budget horror, and not a ton of well-known titles. So as soon as you see the landing page and you see the posters of the movies they have, you're like, oh yeah, these are horror movies that you should watch without eating. Uh you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> um, there's a lot of like uh, gore, violence, projectile vomiting, like pretty cool shit all around, like classic horror stuff. But um, they have a lot of like good stuff on there that I definitely recommend. So they have a ton of like horror classics. And I mean classics, like they have the 1920 film adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with John Barrymore. That's crazy. 
like you can see a hundred year old movie on a streaming service that's crazy uh, free correct no Mm -hmm. you don't have to yes so um it does allow you to stream for fee or you can sign up for a subscribership and there isn't a subscriber count right now um with the relaunch in september 2021 synodyme said that they were looking to acquire at least seven figures within the first 36 months and we haven't reached that time period yet so we'll see if they reach it but yeah they have uh nosferatu from 1922 the phantom of the opera from 1925 with lon cheney um they have the night of the living dead 1968 george romero it's crazy those are all free um if you have a paid account um which costs 4.99 a month you can also see the hills have eyes from 1977 by wes craven and cannibal holocaust an infamous horror movie from 1979 i will say i am a huge horror fan i've seen most things multiple times two things i refuse to watch cannibal holocaust and audition I'm just... Oh, I love both of them. And if you love both of them, you will really love this streaming service because that's what it's kind of focused on. Um, Like I said, it's super cheap. You get uh, like bundle deals with 20 and 40% off if you get like a a quarterly or annual subscription. Um, It's also available to be added as an Amazon Prime channel and it's also available on xfinity through your cable providers so there's a lot of ways to get this um it's supported on web and mobile kind of low ratings on the app store i think their apps are pretty buggy um and i didn't see a lot of uniform support across consoles for like xbox and ps4 or 5 so uh, i think the extent of watching it on a big screen is like your smart tv or um, doing like a screencast on your on your um, web browser I didn't see any parental controls as well so it's like if you have kids they're gonna be seeing some sick shit um, let me tell you about Terrifier 2 um, I don't know if you've seen the press around this but Terrifier 2 sequel to Terrifier 1 um, has Terrifier been- is on Shutter. they're promoting Terrifier on Shutter. well Terrifier 2 was acquired by Screambox uh, for exclusive streaming rights, and it's been playing in theaters as well, where it has been making people shake, convulse, and puke and pass out in the theater. I mean, congrats to this movie. I don't know if people are soft or if they just ate like chili dogs before watching like a murder clown go ham on the screen, but. I haven't heard that reaction to a movie like that in a long time. So we we just them. gave our love to the opposite genre, subgenre within horror, which is like building slow dread and and not using this kind of overt sort of you know scare. Oh, I'm sure there's slow <laughs> dread when you see a killer clown coming up to you and be like, "Here's clowny," and I don't know the content. I don't know the plot. I just love the fact that people are like going back to the cinema and puking on each other to watch a horror movie because that's the kind of community feel like horror is so fun to watch with other people and 
Yeah, absolutely. I can would rather I... be going to a theater and throwing up than throwing up and going <laughs> alone, you know? Can I just say one of my favorite things is... Sadly, this is just a, a sentiment that's happening all across, not just horror. We're just going to the theaters less and less. But one of my favorite things is like when a on an opening night, going to see a horror movie and with a packed theater mm-hmm. and the reaction that happens at a jump scare at a really particularly scary moment where people scream or or like gasp or something like that and then there's like a five second silence and there's laughter afterwards because people are shocked at their reaction oh it just comes out like holy shit i can't believe i reacted like that i had the similar experience when i was watching us by jordan peele um where the audience was just kind of um flipping between yelling warnings to the characters on screen and then laughing at the brutality and enjoying it um, as a carnal release for just the anxiety that they were holding in their body. So I completely get that. And it looks like Terrifier 2 is really pushing horror to that way again. So if you watch Terrifier 2, it's a good signal of what kind of... um, content is on there like that's one of my favorite things about screenbox it's very unpretentious um it has a ton of like that grimy content so if you're like oh fuck this airy after shit i don't watch bitches being chainsawed congrats you've got your streaming service um they have the ability to watch free with ads so there's like plenty of stuff around that if you don't want to sign up that's cool um And if you do subscribe, they have downloads for offline viewing. So you can be the disgusting perv that downloads it on your mobile phone and watches it on a flight while you're sitting next to like a family of five. (laughs) Please do that shit. I love that shit. Um, So that's what I like about it. However, um, in kind of keeping true to its like grindhouse origins of a streaming service, it's also super bucky. A lot of the cheap horror that's available on there, I don't imagine was made with a lot of um, technical investment. So I didn't see any 4K streaming, which like you want to see 4K when you're watching horror, but there isn't anything there. Uh, You're limited to three simultaneous streams. So I don't know if that's a concern for people if they get a streaming service, but like, yeah, no more than three people can be watching it at the same time. So maybe hard to do like, sharing with your roommates or something like that uh it seemed extremely buggy it seemed like the, there was and a this lot is of the crashes. this is the amazon prime integration or would you say the app itself the entire platform i saw bugs on uh the mobile apps i saw bugs on web and i saw bugs on the smart tv application as well a lot of well, sign-in issues. The search function was really terrible. Like, oh, Lord. Yeah, that really turns me off. Like, I actually, when I download a new app on my Prime TV, on my smart TV, I will check the search to actually assess an app. Yeah. Search is, like, the quickest way to know if it's going to function well. Yeah, guys, like, invest in your user interface and user experience, UI, UX. Clearly, they did this without a designer because when you're browsing the different subgenres of horror it's a very clunky experience and i didn't see this for myself but i saw 
uh, a listing of subscription expiration issues where people paid for the subscription, but they were locked out of their account because, I don't know, something didn't go through and they don't have a ton of customer support available. And I think that's just like growing pains. I'm hoping that with this Cinedime acquisition, that means that they can give the proper attention to it. But yeah, I think it's best if you do decide to go through with this, uh, with Screenbox, you do like a month to month thing because it seems kind of iffy. And it's only for well, that's a bummer. Yeah, yeah it is a bummer. I, I, it's a bummer because I have to say horror fans the people that really pay attention to horror tropes, just how horror is constructed well, are movie fans. They care about their cinephiles. They care about content in general. And you want to make sure your experience delivers, you know? You it's know what I mean? It's expensive like, to do that, you know, in hosting yes. video streaming True. and service. You need to have like a ton of, and I'm getting into the technical part of this, like a ton of architecture, ton of UI UX done properly. And maybe they don't have the resources yet, but who knows with the acquisition, they may be getting a cash influx. So I, I, I think that when we come back to this, like 12 months later, if we do, we could see an entirely new platform, which I'm hoping. That would be the hope. That's, yeah. that's pretty great. So it sounds like in terms of like their highlights, it's the catalog that they're really going, like the subgenre yeah. of grimy very, content. Very yeah. B-movie focused. Like I felt like I could see something in there with the title of like cannibal eggplants from outer space. And it was perfectly at home with everything else. Yeah, you know, and listen, of- that is the subgenres within horror, mm-hmm. the, the 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 B movies, like the grainy, low quality movies. That works for this genre. People love that, you know. Yeah, I could see them like roping in uh, Rob Zombie to do something. For example, like I know he loves like House of Thousand Corpses, and listen, I know he's- we're just giving you free idea, Screenbox. Get on it. <laughs> yeah, because I was really put off by Rob Zombie's version of the monsters. I was like, um, this isn't his jam. <laughs> I was like, I was ready to see like grimy monsters. And it was actually really kitty friendly and fresh and squeaky clean. And I was like, nah, go to Screenbox and do something like disgusting, you know? Yeah. And then in terms of like the things that they're struggling with, the things that we'd want them to improve is, is more just technical and UI related. So that's good yeah. to know that it's they have some, a very it's something... they have a very strong product identity. They're not here trying good. to make the new Midsommar, for example. I don't think yes. they ever will. They're not okay. going to fuck over their clientele like that. They're like, we know what you're here for, and this is what we're going to keep doing. So yeah. I can't so I wait love to that. see Terrifier 2 on the stream. Terrifier 2. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love that because as a thinking of it in terms of startup, they've done something, they've established themselves, they have a product vision, they have their mission, they've done things right that an early stage startup should do. And little things are, you know, the, the, as as resources and money expands, they will fix it. Um, I think it's it's harder to have an app that is beautiful and functions and all of that good stuff without having a product identity, without having a good catalog, without having exclusive rights to a 
big movie, Terrifier 2, you know? So yeah, yeah. Good, to, good to hear. I, I will be keep, keeping a close eye on them because I think we will see with this resurgence that's happening in the genre, we'll see them quickly yeah. improve. Yeah, I have ho- I have hopes of them and I wish them luck and success and I'm happy that they're out here like filling a gap in the market. Yeah. All right, we're moving on to Shudder, which is the bigger of the two services in comparison to Screenbox. So for Shudder, launched in 2015 by AMC Network, so it already has a very big parent behind the service, Shudder defines itself as an unbeatable collection of edge-of-your-seat programming. And this is a quote, an unbeatable collection of -of edge-of-your-seat programming from Hollywood favorites and cult classics to critically acclaimed new releases you won't find anywhere else. New original movies added weekly. They have original content added weekly. Whoa. The grind. The grind. The grind. They have between, well, we don't know exactly, but their subscriber base is between uh, one and two million. And but in combination with AMC networks of apps, including Acorn TV, which stay tuned for our assessment of of Acorn TV uh, coming soon. Oh yeah, and uh, they have a co- <laughs> they have a collection of nine million uh, subscribers on track for twenty million in the next four years, which they've really proudly announced and like really um, prognosticated. So um, which is cool. I'm happy for them. The number of titles in their catalog, so about 630 movies, including many exclusives and originals, as we mentioned, and Shutter Library also includes 41 series and seven podcasts. They have podcasts. Oh, shit. Let's get on that. They know what's up. <laughs> um, some highlights of their catalog, so they have classics, right? Evil Dead 2, The Wailing, Audition. The Tale of Two Sisters, one of my favorites. Candyman, Train to Busan, Terrified, <laughs> the first one. <laughs> Terrified 2, Screenbox stole from them, which is good. Good for Screenbox. Um, and lesser known movies, uh, but my recommendations. The Mortuary Collection from 2019 starring Jacob Elordi. Guys, incredible. VHS uh, 94, which has been one of my favorite horror movies ever, highly recommend, uh, came out in 2021. Host in 2020. Host from 2020 is also one of my favorites. It's less than 90 minutes, I believe. That was a Zoom horror movie. It is pandemic horror. (laughs) Peak pandemic, yeah. It's not the like, um, it's not horror like, oh my god, there's a pandemic happening in the movie and how do you deal with it? but it's actually just like perfect for pandemic era uh, because it happens on Zoom. Queen of Black Magic from 2021, Hellbender from this year, 2022, Stay Out of the Attic, 2021, The Boy Behind the Door, 2020, and The Witch in the Window, 2018. These are some of my favorites on Shudder. Highly recommend those. And these titles are incredible as well because this is just like a list of SEO of horror. If you're trying to just like market your movies, just like beautiful phrases that just work. Got in the window, 
we've got stay out we've got attic we've got i don't know like mortuary just like incredible yeah. buzzwords very 360 degree of horror where they scream box was like one specific corner they're like we've got it all come one come all folks Oh my god. I will talk about this momentarily, but Shudder is doing so many things right. Um, and this Nerdist quote from one of their articles is uh, so captures their essence. It's a quote, if you're a horror fan without a Shudder subscription, are you a horror fan at all? Truth. I mean, you could be a broke horror fan. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We support if you just want to watch Content for free on Screenbox. You know what I mean? Hell yeah. Um, we support it. Uh, Revenue-wise, so they just became profitable at the end of 2020. Revenue so is, again, we don't have these exact details, but they are, it's about 5 million, less than 5 million, which is pretty great for a, an upstart little service. And combined with AMC AMC's other suite of apps, the revenue is actually close to one billion. Not quite one billion, but very close. So, which is uh, incredible. And then, they do not seem to have a free tier. There's no ads tier. Uh, so it costs five ninety nine, a dollar more than Screenbox monthly, and fifty six ninety nine annually. So you can get an annual package. There's a lot of deals going on all the time right now, especially. So I believe you get 31% off. Just very specific, 31. Oh, October and... 31st is Halloween. That's why oh, 31%. Yeah. Oh, Gotta yeah. keep it Duh. spooky. <laughs> yes, perfect. And it has a, again, has its standalone app, uh, you know, on all of these services, uh, which I'll mention momentarily, but they're, they're actually quite popular through Amazon Prime Video and YouTube TV service integration. So those are very, if you, it's so funny because I typed in Shutter to download their app on my Prime TV and the Shutter app did not come through, but the Shutter integration came through, which I was like, Prime Video, I see what you're doing. I would highly recommend the app experience over, over anything else though. Like they're, they're standalone app. They've put a lot of, money resources and love yeah. into it and so and, and just as a heads up guys we both are in tech and we can say this with confidence um the native experience what we call the native experience is when you go yes. through the app directly put out by the company itself is always going to be better than an integrated experience aka like what you were talking about going through amazon and getting yes. um yes shutter it's literally just numbers, guys. They will put more effort into building something um, on their own. But should the numbers skew, if like more people are going through Amazon, then they might like take some time to make it better. But you will always get a quote unquote richer experience natively. Yes, 100%. And service integration is also a, if you're, if you don't have that much money to put into your own standalone app, your native experience, it's a good way to like still get your product out into the market and kind of partner with other bigger companies that can handle the experience and you just kind of integrate with them. So uh, we covered availability. So Android, Apple, 
mobile devices, Amazon Fire devices, Android TV, Apple TV, Roku, all the smart TVs, Samsung. It's also available in, in Xbox and PlayStation. In terms of streaming allowance, it seems that officially you can only do one stream at a time, but cable TV tested three streams at a time. So okay. they cannot guarantee, yeah, which is interesting. Uh, probably cannot guarantee if yeah. like one stream doesn't, you know, like just once you put it out there them. as like a feature, then if it doesn't work, you have to be like, oh shit, we got to fix it. But if you don't put it out and it just happens to work, they'll be like, oh, look, it happens to work. We're not on the obligation to like fix it if it breaks, but cool. Good for you. Yeah, imagine customer service agents just being like, wait, what? We weren't told. They weren't given any documentation. Yeah. Um, and so that's a little overview. In terms of, of highlights of the experience, I would say just like the onboarding itself when you download, and I'm going to focus on the the native app experience. When you download the app itself, you're getting this like beautiful acquisition onboarding journey because you get the little like door creaking sound, the black background and the large red font that like looks like it's bleeding. So it's just like very fun. It's just so fun because yeah, it's like the Netflix to you know, they will never take that away because you Oh just, yeah. The user the delight. Identity. Exactly. This is like the key user delight points where you just add something for fun, but it's cute and it is specific to your product and it makes people feel happy about using it. That's literally just the simplest way to describe user delight. And that's what you felt no, su- when you saw that. Never, right? never underestimate surprise and delight, especially in like early tenure journey, right? When you're onboarding customers like it will go a long, long way. Um, in general, very beautiful, sleek, and responsive interface, which honestly, I was taken aback. I expected it to be very basic. And I've I've used it in the past, uh, but I would say this year when I downloaded it again for, you know, Halloween time, incredible. I, I'm already seeing so many, like, improvements and playback is very simple of actual movies there's not a lot of controls but it it delivers what it means to um they have one of my favorite things which was really cool so they have obviously when you enter the experience you have tiles of different things you can different experiences within the uh within the app that you can enter but there's sub channels Oh, cool. Um, subchannels of like live things that that are you don't choose the content so it's like live tv sort of subchannels right now the three subchannels that are happening are folk horror slash x and it came from so you can click on any of them and you're entering a live tv experience of any movie or series that's streaming incredible um, that streaming has brought us back to the experience of <laughs> You'll watch whatever's on TV. <laughs> and we're like, it's this true. is so cool. It's so true. Um, but in one way, it's also like, because Shutter catalog is so massive, it's also like, it plays on the Netflix, like, surprise me feature of like, oh, yeah. I cannot decide, mm-hmm. right? Just give me something scary. Um, so kind of removing that, like, barrier from the user to make decisions and just kind of giving you some some love. 
I love little things like if you select a particular content and you read the info of that content, there's like the ratings are in the form of skulls. So there's five skulls uh, and they're colored into red uh, into reflect the rating so three stars out of five is three skulls that are colored red out of five little things i love them great performance overall just like i didn't experience any timeouts or errors or like app crashing and it was just very responsive when i paused and played and paused and played it was very responsive which honestly you cannot say for bigger apps like hbo max (laughs) like cannot handle that I know it's shocking when you see something like Shudder handle the responsiveness of your video player much better than HBO Max and you're like, you're supposed to cater to a bigger audience. You can't just say like, oh, there's only 10 people in the world watching at a time. Like, no. Yeah, incredible. Um, And classification and curation of content is just next level. So we were talking about so many subgenres being within horror. There are sub, 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 sub genres within these. There's. Do they have I, a projectile vomiting subgenre? Oh my god! I I so I didn't <laughs> actually look through all of them, but I wouldn't put it past them because, like, listen to these. Some of these sections are found uh-huh. frights, okay, zombie jamboree, terror transgressive, full moon fever, vengeance is hers. Oh, I Y'all. love that. I love that. Because I'm I'm guessing Full Moon Fever is like werewolf stuff. Yes. Um, I love that it goes to that and doesn't just call it werewolf shit. Um, love that it's creative and it uses these like cute little um Vengeance is hers. Oh, I just Yeah, love you it. know that it's like a, a a a horror story around like a woman wronged and coming back for revenge. Yeah. And what was that movie that just came out, I believe, from Iran? Um, a Girl Walks Alone at Night? Yes, it was in the 2010s. I was like around like 2015 or 2014, something like that. Um, One of my favorites in this genre, yeah. Yeah, great vampire movie. Uh, but also could be into that Vengeance Becomes Her yeah. kind of yeah okay so that's really cute that's cool and it makes you think and i i I love that they they adore horror and they're not shying away from that these are cinephiles right like imagine that you're doing a little horror party horror get together in october Mm -hmm. that happens a lot right and you're just like browsing this experience with people who've never seen friends and family and you're just like kind of having this like fun conversation on which genre to pick, right? It's so fun. Um, Every month feels like October if you go into <laughs> a experience like this. And I love that yes. there's such full-blown dorks that they're like, you have to know Full Moon Fever is wearable stuff because mm-hmm. you know the lore, loyal horror consumer. Exactly. They treat their customers with with respect. They're They're, yeah, they're showing them that we know that you care about this and we trust you. And so they also have a watch list, which I really love from, and this is circulated very frequently. Right now, a, there's two sections which in the within the watch list. So one is suggestions by director of VHS 94, Chloe Okuno. So she's suggesting her favorites. And um, the other section is by the Boulay Brothers of Boulay Brothers Dracula. 
which love it. Oh, yeah. They're also suggesting their favorites. Um, I've noticed that Shudder pays a lot of consideration towards queer representation and particularly queer horror. Speak on it. And yes. the Boulay Brothers Dragula is a ton of fun. I think that it harkens back to a lot of like specific drag shows that I have been to around this time in you know the gayest city in America San Francisco has incredible experiences but if you can't afford to travel here I would recommend watching the Boulay Brothers Dracula I think it's like missing that key element of the live audience interaction with you but I think all the other fun of going to a drag show that is specifically themed around horror is captured and definitely check it out and there's like yeah a a ton of like really good focus on like queer horror because a lot of the way that queer cinema could even get into the mainstream was through horror because there were so many restrictions around like what you could show around (laughs) queerness and um sexuality in general and so it's really cool that Shudder also pays respect to that. So I will give them props. Love. Yeah. Um, beautiful. And let's see. I would say now moving on to some of the things that they can work on. Now let's um, shit on it. <laughs> yes. I would say like the first thing, right? We were talking about how beautiful their onboarding experience is. Sign up for it, at least on smart TVs, sucks. Like when you're signing up for the service, it is very, you have to type out everything with the TV remote instead of adding like a mobile, right? QR code where you get can a just QR do code, guys. guys. Guys, onboarding is on. crucial. <laughs> I almost, so the real talk, didn't do it the first time. I was like, oh, this is going to take time. Didn't do it the second time. And I was like, oh my God, I, I have to do it and just to prep for the pod. And I did it like third or yeah. fourth time. Now, if you don't have to prep for anything, you could just be like, eh. Maybe I'll go to Screenbox. You know what do I mean? They, do they allow for like using your Google account or your Facebook account or something like that? Nothing. It's literally a screen. A keyboard shows up and then just the text fields. Um, yeah, that's the same problem in Screenbox's app as well. Like the smart TV app has you type in everything. And I feel like guys... People are going to want to watch horror on the big screen as well. Like you're putting all the juicy sound design in there with all the Mm -hmm. squelching and the squishing. We want to hear it. And so improve your smart TV login and sign up processes. Yeah. Yeah, guys. Um, Interestingly, does not seem to support offline downloads, which Raven, you mentioned Screenbox does. Um. So they yes, have it does, put yeah. resources behind that. Uh, interesting because they're putting a lot of resources behind these like live TV type experiences, but they're like, eh, people don't. Maybe there's re- research behind it where they're like, this is ha- yeah. super low priority for us compared to maybe grime heads love, love downloading content and watching it on the plane with a baby next to them. I support that. Watch it on public transit. Watch it. Oh my god, if someone is watching like a disgusting horror film next to me on the train, you know I'm like peering along. Yes. And then otherwise, honestly, not much that I saw that at least at this time that they can start to well, that that, that I thought was missing. 
But I do have some suggestions because they are such a respected name within horror right now. And we are seeing streaming content expand on horror, right? We talked about Mike Flanagan. I'm wondering with AMC behind them, why are they not working to get, they already have original content. Why is, why is Flanagan verse not on shutter? For example, why is Blumhouse, you know, welcome to the Blumhouse. Why is that not on, on shutter? And maybe yeah. it's just the, it's, I mean, the simple amp- answer could be contracts that they have existing contracts. Yeah. Or just like they cannot compete with prime video and Netflix. Cause those are bigger players and ended up getting these bigger names, but it's really something that they should, you know, their original content that does come out is really good. Like it just, it, it it's really good. And it it's, it's not, Cause you go to streaming services and you're like, mm, you know, like that's churning out like new content every week. It's like usually low quality yeah. shutters. Original content is thoughtful and good and they really pay attention to their catalog. So I think their content team should really get behind getting exclusive rights to bigger names in horror and spinning up universes around them. Marketing-wise, I feel like I haven't seen anything about Shutter. Like, why am I not seeing Subway ads in New York? Uh, come October, come fall. Like, I want to see Shutter be advertised more. I want to see. I want to go to Bloody Disgusting, be reading an article on IndieWire, and well, see they're some not ad. gonna do it on Bloody Disgusting because Bloody Disgusting owns <laughs> Screenbox. So there's, you know, tis true. There's, There's corporate hierarchy to actually consider as well. So maybe you're right. I think, again, with the fact that they're linked to AMC, um, I don't know if they have resources they to market. It. I never see any ads. Yeah. I don't know if they promote it on like their cable uh, channels. Maybe they're just like, get Shudder and then, you know, back to season 5000 of The Walking Dead. But I don't, I agree with you that I don't see a lot of like print media, but I have seen it being discussed in the realms of media criticism and like entertainment news, but I haven't seen it being promoted. I see it discussed, but not promoted. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I do love their, there's a Shutter blog, as we mentioned before. The Shutter blog is really well informed about movies, about the history of movies, about this genre. And honestly, I'd love to see, because we love, listen to our episode one, going into Amazon Prime Video's app uh, experience, platform experience. Mm -hmm. And they have this feature called X-Ray Vision, where you pause content and you can see information and trivia about artists and music and like just little facts and figures i would love to see something like this incorporated on shutter where tell me why french horror is so valued tell me why french horror is so prestige why a director made it so big within french horror you know if you're selecting a french horror movie for example give me some context behind what i'm watching and where it comes from and yeah. it really adds to your csat your satisfaction with the customer base you know um the other thing i would say little things that i was thinking about just with not with shutter just other app experiences within this genre it is not easy to watch horror right you have to have a thick skin or be and an empty bladder 
(laughs) (laughs) And what, what if you pause content on Shutter, for example, right? And a lot of, we know that when you pause content, it's very few times that you're actually, it, there, there's a big danger of losing customer attention and actually losing people at that point. Um, why is there not something like a notification after you've paused content, you know, with after five minutes saying like, are you too scared? Would you like to try something like this? You know, or like having meaningful features to really work with the user. Like if they're watching something like really bloody, tell them maybe they can start with another genre. You know what I mean? There's, there's opportunity to draw them back in after they tap out. Um, Oh, shutter mommy, mommy, take care of me. Shutter. (laughs) I love that. They're like, do you want some snacks? Do you want something to (laughs) drink? Do you want some snacks, honey? Do you want some fruit, beta? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like no yeah, mom think- i'm watching like cannibal holocaust i don't need fruit yeah, I'm not <laughs> i need beef jerky <laughs> <laughs> what is the movie coming out with with timmy c uh bones and all yeah that's shutter guys the army hammer store i mean bones and all that's the one sorry it's yeah. true it's true it's the army hammer story <laughs> um and last thing i do want to mention really quickly honorable mention love their social media presence they are very engaged very understanding of their audiences they play a lot with they retweet a lot of stuff they engage with letterboxd from what i saw Final thoughts on this topic. You know, I've been reflecting on my appreciation for the genre. And I remembered that as a kid, I used to watch this cheap, scary show called Ahat. Do you remember that? Oh my God, yes. (laughs) And just so good. Like if I could find it on streaming, I would rewatch like. Yo, ZTV, put this shit out. (laughs) put art on streaming oh my god so good and I remember I have this like vivid memory of like at age 10 or 11 renting the exorcist from the local blockbuster and literally and it was daytime I think it was my whole family just doing their whole like you know like they're just like cooking brunch and like my brother is doing something else and it and I'm watching it during daytime maybe like 12 noon or one and it was so scary. It scarred me, but also fed so much in my into my love of what I was developing, you know, of the genre, into my love of film and stories. Um, and then I was hooked on the genre, right? Kept coming back with, with films Scream and Elm Street and Halloween and Camp Crystal Lake and all that stuff. And now this year alone, as we mentioned at the box office, other than the sequels and superhero movies, which is now this is the life we live, like they, they dominate the box office, horror has really, really left a mark with, you know, we mentioned Nope and the Black Phone, and now there's a new Scream as well. In the top 25 highest grossing at the box office, these all show up, these big names in horror all show up this year with Scream actually dominating number one at the box office opening weekend. 
Now, streaming executives are aware of this and to expand their <laughs> subscribers or keep attrition at bay, they are doubling down on acquiring and producing horror content. Jennifer Salky, the head of Amazon Studios, when asked about the partnership with Jason Blum to create Welcome to the Blumhouse series, she said, quote, we are now driving so much of our Prime engagement across the world through Prime Video customers that we fill our schedule with certain amount of volume. Okay, volume. She continued, we have alter alternate strategies to make sure we're bringing in new customers, which this particular suite of movies and genre has been successful at accomplishing. So she's already seeing like this is this is profitable and they want to continue investing in original horror content on their on their service. It is disheartening that we are seeing less theatrical releases of horror, but of you know in, in general of less theatrical releases of movies uh, as we've seen like this is the general trend. Um, but the, we know the landscape is changing in general and we are seeing more in there. The time is ripe for streaming to just take over or sorry, horror to take over streaming, right? The time is ripe, And I'm constant. I'm confident that we'll only see this space thrive and become incredibly big on streaming. And yeah, we, we've seen it go through peaks and valleys, and uh, but I believe this is an evergreen space that really streaming executives, streaming services can really hone in on. Fan base is endless. Fan base is all year round. Get at us. Mm -hmm. Thoughts, Raven? There's like a tradition to watching horror. I feel like, unlike other genres, except maybe like Christmas movies, but... You know, there's like a time of year where you say, I want to see a scary movie. And I don't think other genres really have that. Um, unless you're one of those people who really wants to go see a rom-com on Valentine's Day or something. I don't know. I just feel like with horror, there's like a tradition of like, oh, every year we watch, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street series El nightmare on m street series do you have a tradition like that every year on halloween what do you watch nightmare before christmas <laughs> uh, yes um but i also like i love trick-or-treat it's like a fun horror comedy um i also know that krampus is a christmas movie but i do end up watching it on halloween as well because it's fun um guess what mine is it's a classic. It's an older one. Is it Jaws? Oh, no. Well, look, we can talk about whether that's like purely horror or more. I love Jaws because I think it is horror, but it's like, yeah, there's versatility in the horror genre. Um, what it's is the yours? Exorcist? Oh, you do see. I get projectile vomiting vibes from you, girl. Yeah. Sorry, it's the demonic Kira. possession. I, just... I believe, like the sub -gen sub sub genre that I really respond mm -hmm. to the most, it's the okay, it's the you, little you... paranormal demonic three a.m. shit. Like, you know the omen and other devil shit. Oh yeah. my god, it's all for you, Damien. See, I love that we can revisit it, and it doesn't take away like the fun of watching the movie. I know that I literally quote even... that all the time to my friends to just scare them. <laughs> yeah, I love the um. Sixth Sense. I love Manoj's mm. work. 
M. Night Shyamalan, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just call him Manoj like I'd really know him, but... Our dude, Manoj. I, I love revisiting that and knowing the big twist doesn't take it away. I feel like I still get a lot out of it. So horror has rewatchability and streaming can really capitalize on that. So I think that that's a good space. Um, I think it's also streaming is a good space for these underrepresented genres that kind of have been seen less in theaters or um, promoted less theatrically because they don't have that mass market appeal. Netflix kind of did it when they were like, we're going to take the rom-com and we're going to put like effort into making it really respectful to the people who love the genre. I feel like the whole... um, resurgence around rom-coms on streaming came about because netflix said yeah you're not seeing these in theaters anymore so we'll we know we'll put out a spate of stuff there like that whole series of to all the boys and never have i ever catered to like the teenage rom-com which i don't remember seeing in theaters Mm -mm. for a very long time and they have the opportunity to also now do that with horror where you can get really specific subgenre stuff in there and say hey we're not going to shit on you for liking this subgenre we're going to put all the elements that you like about it in here and it's on the streaming service if you don't want to watch it don't watch it if you do watch it watch it multiple times so it's cool to see that there's a better representation coming along with that because uh, Whatever gets onto theaters now, it's just like, yeah, they're all very, very formulaic. It's either things that make a ton of money or need to be screened on theaters because they want to comply with Academy rules for getting Oscar nominations. And nothing in the middle. So I don't think we'll see another Shining and I don't think we'll see another When Harry Met Sally. And that's sad. Sadly. Um, Times have changed drastically, yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to conflate those two genres, but I feel like they have a lot of similarity that way because... You are right, yes, absolutely. They are are a broad genre that contains a lot of different types of subgenres, and they appeal to a wide variety of audiences. I think horror especially is not defined by um, other demographics like gender, (laughs) men and women and everybody in between and outside of the gender spectrum enjoy horror. There's a lot to be said about it. You know, there's an incredibly thoughtful essay that I saw about how body horror is a cathartic experience for people who are undergoing gender transitioning. So if transgender people have a different experience in watching body horror than a cisgendered person does it's because of their experience in kind of going through like that second puberty or experiencing not feeling yourself within your own body and that's like a metaphor in a lot of body horror movies so I was like oh that's why so many people within the trans community love David Cronenberg holy shit I I didn't like I didn't put that together but I was like look at that look at how thoughtful horror can be and it's not served anymore. I I know that David Cronenberg just had a movie go out this year, and a ton Amira of people, Ken. yeah, not a lot of people watched it in theaters because it's like, oh, this is a weirdo freak movie. But I 
hope that the, the, it has a place to stay within like the minds and hearts of viewers on streaming. So if Netflix doesn't acquire David Cronenberg's pictures, I'll be very sad. But um, let's do Shutter, Shutter, Screenbox, or Shutter and Screenbox, crimes, yeah. crimes of the Future. Oh, I man. think Crimes yeah. of the Future, for example, could fit in really well even at Screenbox because it would feel very much at home right next to like uh zombie cheerleader strippers or whatever you know it's like weirdo <laughs> freak horror and i love it and th- those kind of like niche stuff get ignored you know yeah. so yeah. i just i just feel like streaming can come in and make it feel less ignored and then there is like the the nasty competitive capitalist bullshit that happens could be a good thing sometimes if it works as intended because if you see something succeeding in streaming studios may try to replicate it so if something gets popular on streaming maybe a studio will say let's make a big screen version of this yeah maybe that will work out competitively so we'll see yeah, I cannot wait to see more services dedicated to this genre, more and horror fans honestly because of all of these subgenres, they don't they can ex- they're always expanding. Like we can debate if Aliens or Jaws is horror to me and maybe we'll have a different answer, but why not put them on a service dedicated to scares mm-hmm. and expand that service and get more people into the fold of this genre that we call horror yeah. and it's just streaming is the place to do it and streamers like our our love and respect to Shutter and Stream Screenbox, but we want to see more. We want to see existing services do more for the genre and experience. Yeah, remove the choice paralysis that people face, where it's like yeah. at least narrow it down to genre and um, make the kind of stuff that other people don't want to make because there's always reasons not to financially, like, or people will be like, no one wants to see this, no one wants to do this, and you have that option to look into user viewing habits and what people want to see. So get experimental, get crazy. You're not subject to the same restrictions as like a wide scale distribution of a movie is. So I want to see that as well. Yeah. All right. So with that, that is a wrap for our episode. Thank you for listening. Um, We are going to return next time with talking about movie pass. It's back, y'all. It's back. We're going to be doing it. It's been resurrected from the dead like a mummy. Keep it spooky. It's been great hanging out with everyone. Bye, full screeners. Bye, everybody. Have a happy Halloween.